got? What do we got there? Hey, how are you, Jamie? Oh, looking good. Sorry, I was delayed. I oh, was you're fine. Like, I was uh, <laughs> taking a while to load there. How are you, man? I'm great. You sound great. You look great. <laughs> and you as well. <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you. You as well. It's the lighting, uh, I tell people. You got a good lighting designer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I'm I'm all of those things. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> so this is this is super random. I just have to say, uh, I got to say two things real quick. I I love that. Yeah. I feel like I've connected with you so well over the years, and I've only met you once. Isn't this insane? I was just going to say it's been over a decade. I mean, it's, what was it? Oh, nine. In, yeah. In the, 09, the conference? Summer of oh, nine. The beautiful last frontier theater conference. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and yeah, it was, it was a good time. Uh, what, how was that experience for you heading all the way over to Alaska to develop a play of all things? Well, it was, it was really awesome as a, I mean, as a playwright, I, I went in oh, eight and oh, nine. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just first of all, just being out there is just surreal. I mean, especially for an East Coast guy oh, like myself, sure. I had never been that far <laughs> west. And had you ever been before? No, you went no, I had never been to Alaska. It's, you know, but Wyoming is like mini Alaska. You know, the mountains are only like half as tall as Alaska's. And, and so there, it, it felt comfortable. But when I, I yeah. we got down uh, off of that little puddle jumper that we took from Anchorage to to Valdez that that was still overwhelming right. because I had never seen mountains that big. It was just gorgeous and, and breathtaking, it's but unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. But even more so, I think, and, and just to kind of comment on last frontier real quick, I've sure. never been to a place like that after, you know, it's, it's been a very, I've, I have fond memories of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, it was kind of otherworldly for me and mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't gone to any sort of theater conference like that since, uh, uh -huh. nor before. Yeah. So it was, it was really interesting. I mean, one, it was a great, you know, environment. It was also a great vibe, met a lot of interesting people, uh, such yeah. as yourself, who I've still been in contact with, albeit, you know, mainly through social media, but we, you know, we do, you know, actually some of us really like interact and actually a good friend of mine who's in New York, I knew her barely in New York we connected out there oh. my friend her, her name is cinda lawrence and we're we're you know very good friends now as a result of like meeting out there but it was kind of funny because we're both coming from new york we yeah. just didn't know each other well um but yeah it was just a wonderful experience i mean to go there as a playwright um i was also in readings as an actor too so that was just you know extra yeah. and uh meeting people from all over the country I mean, that was really the the thing you know you're meeting people from wyoming california mm -hmm. washington state um texas i mean they were just from everywhere right and um yeah it was just really really cool and the food oh, was good, good. Oh, i still remember great. the toad <laughs> remember the toad did you go to the totem hill the restaurant uh, there? yeah the, the halibut they got the halibut there right they probably do have halibut yeah, we went that's... for breakfast all the time oh. and those pancakes, I still, they're like, they were like the size of, I mean, they were like discus. Yeah. It was yeah. enormous. I rolled out of there every time we had breakfast, but, yeah. um, they're, they're, uh, bear hunting pancakes, great. you know, they, yeah, they get you ready for the actual hunt, you know? Uh, but 
before right. we get we, exactly before, you feel like you're <laughs> right before we get into the weeds too much i just uh i wanted to to kind of give a, a quick overview here because you're an actor playwright a storyteller in in really a lot of different capacities and to be a part mm-hmm. of some of the new work that you're putting together you know uh, uh having the pleasure to do some of your poetry getting to read your latest novel which came out yeah. this summer which i was very very um excited to talk to you about um i'm just really marveling at how you're able to do so many things and you you do them at such a a, a caliber that it's not like the the poetry is helping my my fiction so the poetry is not nearly there you know like i read your poetry and it still holds the same water as as say the way that you write prose or the way that you've written a play because i've oh, seen thanks, some of your Jeremy. plays and and i just i want to ask you about that really because um yeah. I guess maybe I should start with with what you prefer because do you think that you're a writer or an actor first? Well, I've always been um prideful of wearing the badge of actor playwright, playwright actor and um you know even though there have been various times throughout my career where I've definitely been much more of the writer than the actor <laughs> right. just for, you know, in terms of just the accessibility of getting work um i still do very much consider myself a performer because they scratch different itches Mm. for me so um while certainly especially like the last year was case in point of course i did much more writing than anything even though i did do some online readings and some online stuff but it wasn't quite the same um, I, I, I still consider myself very much, very much both because I, I love both. Um, now that things are opening up, you know, incrementally here in New York, um, I'm really, really itching to get and do some live theater. Um, I I just wrote a draft of a, um, of a new solo show that we're going to do a reading of my company Fandango for Art House. We're going to do a reading of in October, uh, and then ideally try and uh, put something up in uh, in the winter. Mm. Um, you know, finances. You know, sure, uh, sure. If they're if they're if they're there, or if we can get a break on a space or whatnot. But um, yeah, to answer your this question, the, the short answer is yes. I consider myself both. <laughs> Now that's wonderful. When you were when you were younger, first starting out in this in this craft, w- how did you come in? Did you come in as a as a an actor who just wanted to be part of a a larger production, or did you already have that inkling of I'm going to be a storyteller on paper as well, or did the writing come out of the yeah. acting? It, it pretty much that. I mm-hmm. I got the acting bug first back in probably middle school. And very much shortly after that time, I, I got, I really became interested in playwriting. Mm. And it was, it was kind of a happenstance thing. I'd never, to this day, I've never formally studied mm. playwriting, even though I, I teach it myself. Um, but, you know, I remember as a kid in my middle school, going on the shelves of the library and pulling out the collected Neil Simon. Oh, okay. And, and I, you know, and I, I, make no bones of bringing this up because even though he might be a little less popular now than he has in other aspects of his career, Mm -hmm. his, his abilities with dialogue and rhythm is like reading, reading sheet music. And for any young budding playwright or, or someone that maybe thinks they 
I don't know, there was something about opening that those plays and seeing the dialogue and, and understanding like at 11, 12 years old, you know, kind of how this goes, yeah. um, the tempo and rhythm and, and, and a playwright that kind of gets that it's not just writing a, an exchange it's also there's a there's rhythm there there's yeah. there's a, something else there i can imagine sort of the point of entry for an actor being so uh so enticing you know for to read a neil simon play and looking at that musicality and feeling that energy um yeah. i do i do love that about you know one of the things that we didn't talk about either is your music uh you're also a musician and uh you had an awesome ep out earlier this year which i I've had uh, the first track of that stuck in my head for the last like four months. Um, the oh wow, yeah, it's it's a, it's a great track, you know. It's it's very uh, comforting. But you know, coming back to Neil Simon, I he wasn't one of my favorites, but I could I could sense that there's some playwrights who just have that music, who come at it from the sense of understanding that yeah. dialogue or that pace, that kind of magic that you can only get from actually being a performer and a writer yourself. Do you think that yeah. you that your acting has improved because of your writing or do you think your writing has improved because of your acting? Well, a little a little bit of both. Um as one I mean as an actor, uh I'm that much more respectful of of the text. Um you know, and so when I'm doing a play, it, it really whether it be for a playwright who's not present, be it a you know a huge famous playwright that this play's been done a million times, or a playwright that is dead, or for you know a playwright who this is a premiere of, um, it means something to me to serve the play, not only the role, mm -hmm. but get get the the role in the context of the play. Not that I'm worried about the whole arc of everything, I, you know you can't, but it, it does. It has helped my sense of responsibility as an actor being a playwright. Mm -hmm. And as a playwright, um, you know, I've always said I wouldn't write anything for an actor to do that I wouldn't do myself as a performer. <laughs> and I, you know, I always and yeah. I've always had to say this. I've always had to say this when I work with like new directors of my plays, because aside from maybe two directors who I work with, who I who are New York based, who I really trust with my work, I have had a, a difficult time with directors uh, in in terms of getting not getting a sense that they're kind of nervous <laughs> around mm. me and and, yeah. I, and i the one thing i try and and do right off the bat is put them at ease and just stress i i i'm an advocate for everyone here and my job is to just be here for you guys and just know i'm here so use me yeah. if you got questions don't think you got to struggle to figure it out i'm here and just know i get what you got to do i get what they have to do and i want to help you guys so i don't put the onus on them like this is my play <laughs> and you have to serve me right, you know it's right. not i i don't because yeah so i really try and 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 use my experience as an actor to be a, a comforting playwright in terms of dealing with directors and actors and usually that that has worked um, so I, and I feel what I've learned in both and as I've grown in both, one has served the other. I definitely feel I'm a better mm -hmm. actor for being a playwright and a better playwright for being an actor because I've been able to think of other things right. um, with both crafts. Sure. So uh, being a, a New York guy, you, you've, um, 
you're part of that fabric, right? Would you say that that's kind of uh, how it goes? You know, wherever you go, you have theater <laughs> opportunities or you see the the availability of theater or, or is it not as proliferated as I think in my, in my uh, non-New York mind? <laughs> well, I mean, you do have a, I mean, it now is kind of weird because we're just coming out of, um, there is like off and off, off Broadway happening and things that are, opening like in the next month and then you know broadway is kind of a separate thing but things are going to be opening on broadway in the next month uh, i think there's going to be 12 or 13 shows on broadway that are set to launch mm. uh if not later in september we're in september now uh, if not this month then it's probably in previews now mm. but um so things are you know are opening up i mean at the same time as far as opportunities for actors it's still yeah it still feels I don't want to say slim pickings, but you know, there's, there doesn't seem to be enough opportunities out there based on all the actors that are just dying to work that sure. haven't been working. Sure. So that can make everything seem smaller by yeah. comparison. So looking at the assessment of, I guess, I guess I, I value your input as, as somebody who's kind of been there, been there at the, at the ground level of, of New York going through something like this. I imagine your experience as as told by your poetry in 104 days of poetry, mm -hmm. it just seems like it was such a, a drastic experience from what we had here, where we're normally in isolation here. We're normally at a distance and everyone's at arm's length <laughs> in essence, you know, like emotionally and, and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, how was that experience for you seeing your city, the place that, that you've called home for a very long time, go through this kind of pandemic? Because it seems like, it struck mm. you guys a lot worse than most people just because of, of oh yeah yeah the the theater world being there well i mean just the i mean the population of new york city and when i say the city i say like the city and the surrounding boroughs of the city uh brooklyn queens and and uh the bronx uh i mean you're talking eight million people yeah yeah. And that's not even including all of upstate, which is like a separate state from New York. I mean, New York mm -hmm. is basically divided into New York State and yeah. New York City. That's basically <laughs> New York. Yeah. And they're two very, very, very different places. New York upstate is probably not much that different from maybe where you are, maybe not as spread out, <laughs> but it's still very different. But from the city's perspective, I mean, it was I was just talking about it with a friend of mine today. I mean, it was uh, in, in a day. I mean, I remember what happened the day before all the so-called crap hit. Mm -hmm. Um, cause I was uh, doing, I was a teaching artist at the boys club of New York. Mm -hmm. I was teaching drama there and I had just come out and like the next day yeah. was the 12th. And when everything was starting to be shut down right. and it was, and then coming to New York, having to come into New York, like, cause I live in Brooklyn, um uh, you know like a couple of months later and it was like a ghost town it was um because there was no reason to go in really unless you were i think i came in the first time to like give blood or something mm -hmm. but it was um yeah it was a ghost town it was like night of the comet <laughs> it was uh just very very strange and the thing was you just did not know this seemed like a very open-ended thing. You did not mm. know, you couldn't presume all things will be back. I mean, you were always hopeful that something, you know, the month or two months will kind of mm. come out of it. But then just things metastasized that people not just in New York saw, mm -hmm. uh, because it was a combination of how this thing was developing combined with 
our um, our lovely president and government we had at the time that was, yeah. I mean, literally symbolically pl- pouring gasoline on everything. And it seemed that for New Yorkers, at least, you know, we had and it's it's odd to say now because he's just uh, been basically deposed Governor Cuomo. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you have to say and I think most many New Yorkers will tell you this is he was kind of a saving grace in terms of sanity. Mm. Um, you know, every day, and I go into this in the po- in 104 days of the pandemic, sure. uh, on a couple of poems where I talk about like just a day that my wife and I ran to do some errands, got some lunch, came back and watched the governor speak. And that was kind of almost like a scheduled thing. He would speak for two or three hours. He would go through the oh, breakdowns of things. Yeah. And he was, his voice was the antithesis of what we were hearing, um, in DC. And it was, it was right. somewhat of a solve. I mean, it, it, we needed it. We needed someone that was an elected official to, to tell us that, you know, we weren't completely going off the rails here. Mm. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So New York had that kind of center, at least as much as we were in the line of fire with it. I mean, mm. we were dealing with so much we had. Uh, I don't know if you had heard we had um, there were tents in Central Park because mm-hmm. of the overflow of hospitals. I mean, it was. It was um, it was very scary. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the fact that we've come through it now, um, I mean, we're not through it completely. We we have to be cautious, but there is a sense that things are getting back to normal, but it still will take some months. And, um, you know, all we can do is kind of just go with it and do our Mm -hmm. due diligence, you know, and protect each other. Yeah. So how did 104 Days of Poetry essentially begin for you? Was it something that you just had to do or was it more like, I got I to gotta stay fresh, I have to write something? Or is this part of our routine where you, you just got to crank out some stuff pretty regularly? <laughs> well, I, yeah, at the time, what was, it's 104 Days of the Pandemic was um, one of a couple of different writing projects. I was actually still working on my novel at that point as mm. well um the woman in the sun hat um and just to cut to that for a quick second yeah so i i had put the woman in the sun hat was a novel that i had worked on and off for from uh with um i had worked on and off on for about five years and i kept putting it aside to work on plays because i'm like no one's in a rush for me to write a novel (laughs) and then when the pandemic hit i went back to it and i was about halfway to where i wanted to be and i said okay well this is the excuse for me to finish this. Mm. And so pretty much from March through July, I were, I finished the draft of woman in the sun hat at the same time in, um, by March 19th, I just had a compulsion to also write a poem a day, um, regarding just basically my experience with life during this pandemic from the perspective of a New Yorker. And, um, you know, and it was, I, I knew it would kind of be an open-ended thing. So I said, well, let me write, I can't write these poems in perpetuity. So Mm -hmm. I'll make it to June 30th, which happens to be my birthday. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's probably a good enough day to end it. And so I started writing these poems daily, um, beginning on March 19th through June 30th, which made 104 days. Mm -hmm. And, um, basically what, you know, from the start, I, I'm, vaguely remembering that I think I thought that this was just going to be what I was experiencing on a given day, be it 
more political base, more personal, mm -hmm. uh, more, more New York based or world based. And then things were happening in the world that was outside of this pandemic. And, and it not only were, is there a lot of poems in here that are personal uh, in, to me in my life, um, even in my past, but then, you know, stuff like George Floyd happened and Ahmaud yeah. Arbery happened. And then we had protests oh. and rioting. And so yeah. it became, it became something else again, while, while all this other stuff was going on. So to me, that made it for an interesting narrative because you're not getting one thing, you're getting many different things. Mm. Um, and, and there were even some days that were like, you know, one day was like, um the anniversary of the kent state massacre oh, which right. coincided which coincided with when uh in ohio they were raiding the capital because they didn't want to be uh they didn't want to be locked in and i thought what an irony you know so i have yeah. a poem like ohio 1970 2020 um you know they have this now and then back then you know we had kind of a juxtaposition of of incidents in the same state. And so there was just little things every day, most days, there seemed to be something that would just fuel something. I didn't go into a day knowing what I was going to write, kind of the day dictated it. Mm. And if it was a historical, like, like one of the poems I wrote was the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. So I wrote a poem about Tiananmen Square. Mm. Uh, but then there was maybe there was something in the news or, or a, a death toll or, or a frontline worker that committed suicide, or there were different things that mm. were tr triggers. And so it, it, you know, they came out more or less, you know, without much force mm. um, through the end. And I, and my goal was to not mess with them. Um, to yeah. kind of leave it as is, I mean, to be honest with you, Jamie, I mean, I maybe cut two lines um, and just made a couple of little punctuation corrections, but sure. pretty much sure. every poem you see is as I was, as, as it was written on the day. And that, and that's great because I think that one of the, the things that we get carried away now is, is development in all its forms. And I, <laughs> I really, I really think that, I mean, as a playwright, you definitely know that uh, that feeling of like, we're beating this into the ground. Sometimes, mm. you know, especially in poetry, I can imagine it's a good exercise to understand that maybe what you, what you were able to expel or create or conceive in some way is kind of okay as it is, you know, like, like we have very little yeah. patience anymore to just let things be. And I mean, do you, how do you feel about that? I mean, you, you run Fandango for Art House. I imagine you do a lot of development there. I, I kind of see that you do some of that stuff too. Well, the, the company was formed at, it's my wife and I, my wife, uh, Judy Alvarez and myself's own company. And I basically created it as an outlet for my work basically. Yeah. And to work with, with, you know, create opportunities for our friends as well as myself as a performer. When, if I write, happen to write something for myself, but um, it, really is not we're not heavy into development we do read we have a reading series okay. so i mean that's oh, as that's, much development yeah, as we I do think that's what i'm thinking of yeah we don't do like I, I don't have like a dramaturge brought in or whatever i'm not a sure. huge fan of that yeah a bit more pointedly uh what your thought was on development period well it's funny because i even remember when i was at the the last frontier theater conference and we had there was a workshop on dramaturgy and i remember i mean i wasn't i wasn't uh 
onerous about it, but I did, I, I was trying to, the, the woman who was, it was a very nice woman who was leading the workshop, who was a, you know, quote, professional dramaturg. I was really trying to distinguish what she does to what a director should do, mm. which is, okay. you know, kind of analyze the text, know the text, um, you know, make sure it's kind of consistent, ask the playwright questions. Um, but it, with, with the advent of theaters getting grants and all this stuff, dramaturgy mm. had kind of morphed into a larger thing. Mm. And you heard all these nightmares about uh, plays in developmental hell, as you pretty much alluded yeah. to, where where they had a play that they thought a company was interested in. They did like a billion readings. And, and in the end of the day, the play never even gets produced. Mm -hmm. And the play often becomes something the playwright didn't even envision originally. And, you know, so, but as far as I mean, to me as a playwright, I always think the, the biggest thing is, yes, you definitely have to get a play read. The nothing tests a play better than hearing it, yeah. um, you know, and with a with a poem, you know, poems, poetry is very deceiving because you can take you can you can kill yourself over five lines. I mean, you know, this, Jamie, oh, you're certainly. a poet. Yeah. Um, and it took me it took a real long time for me to really mature as a as a poet because I tended mm. to always. So it came later. Have a couple for of you. lines that I just, yeah, absolutely. Because it's it's something that I mean, I was joking the other day. It's like it wasn't that long ago where I didn't even get poetry that didn't rhyme. <laughs> I mean, and then I read and I read, and then I started reading people like Anne Sexton and mm -hmm. Charles Bukowski, and it yeah. those opened worlds for me uh, as mm -hmm. a as a as a poet, and they also inspired me too in certain ways as a playwright. So this was writing this poetry book was at this time was good for me because I thought I'd matured enough where I could write something that I thought was respectable and good without mm -hmm. feeling a need to really go over it and add and make it hit things over the head, just kind of make it what it was. And right. if it's understated, let it be understated. If it's enigmatic, let it be enigmatic. Um, just let it come out of that moment. And this was kind of a good exercise for that because my goal was to get it out on the day and move on. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I tried to stick to that. Yeah. And I love that. It's just got to be a good counter to the kind of uh, beating that we take in the theater life where you do have this, this thing that you're able to see through to the end. And maybe, maybe that's what it is. You know, it's just feeling like nobody's going to mess with this one, <laughs> you know, like you, you, yeah. have, to, well, you, you have, have to just let that be. You have to, you know, I mean, when once something is mounted and whatever, and it's and it's it's open, then it, you got to let get your talons out of it and let you know let it go. But sure. in the process of developing it, I mean, you got to just still remember what it is about it, why you wanted to write it, and and what the identity of the play is from your perspective, and don't let other people impose that identity on you because sure. then it see, it it see, ceases to be your own creation it ceases to be your catharsis mm -hmm. and so that's just always an important thing to yeah. keep in mind so so as you see it when you when you create your own work and you produce it on your own which i'm a big fan of i think that's that's kind of the way to go do you feel that there is this is the perfect time to do that or do you think that the ideal way is to find producers or find a theater to take a chance on it or what is the benefit of, of doing your own work producing that? Well, I mean, in, in the ideal world, you know, and, and particularly from my perspective as a playwright, I would love to write a play, already have theaters that I had 
that were interested in it and have them mount it and have it on their nickel and and, and just be the playwright. Um, that's kind of the idealization. But what the reality is, <laughs> is that you can go very easily, you know, I, I could have one full length that that's done at a nice regional theater. Um, and then you can go three or four years and you're not getting your full lengths done mm -hmm. anywhere. And so part of what I, why I created Fandango for Art House was because I was impatient as heck and I, oh, yeah. I wanted to self-empower myself. Um, not that it's easy to raise money to do a play um, and go through, you know, and get insurance and all that. And, and, you know, but, you know, I have to say I'm stronger for all the things I've learned. I mean, as mm -hmm. from marketing to yeah. designing um, and, and all that stuff. And, you know, with one of the things that came out of the last solo show I, I did, which I actually did quite a few places, it was a play called American Tranquility, mm. which, which I kind of wrote a few months after uh, the election of uh, Emperor Orange, we'll call him. <laughs> um, and it, and it was about it was about uh, and that and that is mentioned many times in 104 days of the pandemic. So if I think people like will that. get really quickly. Yeah, I try not to say his actual name. Um, but I, at that point, I was I was always struck even before him um, that there was I sensed there was you know real division in the country, mm -hmm. and so American Tranquility was like four separate monologues from four different characters, and they mm. were you know covered ageism, immigration, uh, political extremism, and and yeah. kind of existen existentialism, um, you know feeling wanting to remove yourself from like our cyber culture, and it was. Yeah, those were themes that were in me for a while, and then when when he was elected, it was just it germinated very quickly, and I wrote it in about you know mm -hmm. two or three months. And because it was a solo piece and it was pretty low rent, I you know was able to kind of do that fairly inexpensively. I did it uh, mainly in New York at some like festivals and uh, even at the Capitol Fringe in D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had an arrangement with uh, East Village Playhouse, which I did two different runs of it and even got had an extended run. Oh, great. And by the time we were coming back the second time, they let us be there rent free and they just took the box office, wow. which made which made it possible. And so um they're hanging by a thread last i heard i'm still in, in uh connecting to the guy who runs the space because mm. their landlord has let them stay there rent free for like a year oh, wow. so i yeah i'm hoping that that that's something that even after the pandemic the landlord can be equal that generosity yeah, and um and have that space because then that'll make it more affordable to do to produce my next piece but mm -hmm. you know ideally you don't it's a pain in the butt to produce because you got to think of so many other things. Mm -hmm. But um, once you go through it, you know, as I said, you you're stronger for it. Right. And once you know you can do it, then you don't feel as emboldened to theaters that reject you, basically, <laughs> because because, you know, at the end of the day, Jamie, you know, everything is subjective. And, and what may, what we're seeing at a lot of these major theaters is certainly not all the best of what's out there. It's just the work that's gotten the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So once you accept that and have faith in your own work, then that's when you just say, well, hell, we'll just do it ourselves. And, right. and you find a way to do it. It's a very empowering thing. Uh, I can imagine I've yeah. only done that on a smaller scale, you know, based on where we're at, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, like trying to find the right audience for, uh, for what you're writing, you know, that's, that's kind of the tricky thing, but right. you know, in terms of, 
I, I have a theory that I, I don't, I guess I want to, I want to run by you. I feel that a lot of, a lot of institutions, especially in academic settings that teach theater and give us a lot of the fundamentals of our craft, sometimes forego the practical application of the arts in this world that we live in. Uh, Not the idealized, you know, playhouse that we kind of tend to be in when we're in a, in an educational setting. Do you think that it's an appropriate thing to say, you know, if, you're, you're a college institution or something like that to require a minor in business or a minor in marketing or a minor in education. Do you think that having that other foundation will make you a better promoter of your own work, a better, a, I guess, maybe better suited to function in the world that is very much anti-theater sometimes? That's, that's a really interesting question, Jamie. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've spoken, I have a friend who, um, Bruce Lev, a really nice guy. He directed me in a playoff Broadway about 12, 13 years ago. He is a professor up at Cornell Mm. and he has been nice enough to invite me on two occasions to speak to his, uh, playwriting class. They basically, he gives them a play of mine. They analyze it. I come up and they basically probe me with questions. Nice. And I got the last time I went up, it was before it was the year right before the pandemic actually it was last it was like i think late 19 and um they were actually confiding in me these there was like it's just like five people in this class but Mm -hmm. how the drama department i mean cornell which as we know is is a major major college i mean it's if you've ever seen it it's like a state in it it's like wyoming i mean it is it's that big (laughs) and 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 they have all this money and they've taken it all out of drama and put Mm -hmm. it in in other things because the the people that head the college now don't get theater. They, right. they, they, right. uh, I mean, I was told that they had a, a whole like warehouse of costumes from like 40 years of, of productions there. And they wanted to just kind of burn it. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, that was the kind right, of disregard right. they had. <laughs> and these students were telling me, these students were telling me how hard they, they couldn't even, there's all these theater spaces at Cornell that are not used for theater. They're used oh. just for like seminars. Mother and these God. kids, <laughs> these kids who want to do like a, a reading or, or a work or some, like a showcase type production. Yeah. They can't get these spaces at their own college that they're spending probably forty, fifty thousand oh, $50,000 a year. That is obscene. Yeah. Where their parents are. So <laughs> that's that. What you just said speaks directly to those kids that I spoke to because they don't have, they graduate there and they don't feel they, they haven't been prepped even at their own college where they Mm -hmm. went for drama as their major, I think. And now they're going out and they don't even know where to begin. And one of the things that I had told them was kind of what I'm telling you about, you know, get with, you know, I didn't even go to college. So having the benefit a lot of these companies, you know, started off with going back to Steppenwolf, you know, Mm -hmm. they're all, they were college friends. They knew each other and they started something in a church basement or whatever. And that's how things start. And if you have two, if you have at least two or three like-minded fellow artists, you can make, you can do some cool stuff. If you work out something, you get a space. I mean, it's, it's always best if you're not like, way out in a very rural area where it's already hard to get audiences. But if you, you know, even in a small town or, or in a city that's doesn't have to be New York, 
um, if you just get some like-minded people and band together, you can make something and, and you have to be prepared to do that because mm -hmm. if you're just going to go out in the world and think their opportunities are just going to be there or that everything that you're going to apply for, you're going to get, it's just not the reality. Right. Um, right. And you to know, be honest with you, that is exactly how I felt when I, when I left the university of Wyoming, not, not to discredit anything mm. that I learned there. I mean, I, it was very, very useful for me. I mean, I, I was, uh, Sure. First in my in my family to go to college in the U.S. My older sister had a completely different experience in Mexico. Wow! But having it felt like there was no practical application in my mind, or maybe I was just sheltered. I had no one to really look look at, and my my biggest thing was just feeling like I had a delusion that nobody told me about for about four years, and then after that, it kind of like the bubble just kind of popped in it, and everything made sense. Like oh, nobody's going to come and pluck me out of this place to do this. Or, you know, even when I was in Seattle doing theater there, nobody's going to extend a right. hand to do it. You really have to be your best champion and you have to acquire as many tools yeah. as possible to survive. And I, I just feel incredibly sad for, especially those kids, like you're saying, dropping forty to $60,000 on an education that, you know, it yeah. might've been better served getting something to help them navigate this world that doesn't understand theater. And we, I, I just think we need the tools to back ourselves yeah. up in the real world. <laughs> I guess maybe that's, yeah. the, that's the argument. And, and I think, and I think, I mean, it's a great subject to bring up because, you know, what we know knew is theater before this, this pandemic started is, is a different, theater now um you know mm -hmm. now you know we lost a lot of theaters we lost a lot of theaters in new york i mean a lot there, i can't I even mean, imagine yeah rehearsal spaces i mean I, I didn't know all of them but i knew quite a bit and i i performed at some of them um and they just went away so you know the hole's getting a little narrower mm -hmm. and so what do you do well you know, if you still love it if this is what you do you you figure it out right and um you know hopefully you know, city states that have, you know, a cultural interest will, will help get the legs back on, um, in the culture department and mm -hmm. be able to re restart, re give rebirth to, to some things, because once you take theater out of the equation, um, it's a, to me, it's hugely damaging mm. to the future. I mean, there's an already so many school, so many kids, that go to that, you know, don't have exposure in their high schools. Mm -hmm. um, they can go to high school and, co and college and know nothing about theater. Right. And, um, you know, they know streaming, they know Netflix, they know, you know, that's what they know. Sure. But the experience of being in a room with other people is, is irreplaceable. And um, we have to still, we have to foster that. It was already very precarious before mm -hmm. the pandemic and now it's gotten worse. So now it's just the time to, to just figure things out and figure out what, what you can do to, to get around it. And, um, and kids that are coming out of college, you know, as I said, the, the best thing that they'll have is other like-minded people. Mm. And, um, you know, I think they'll, they'll come up with something. I mean, even if it's a very small thing and, you know, even if they just rent spaces, mm -hmm. um, if they're doing their craft, if they're doing what they love, then there's a victory in that. So awesome. that's what we got to foster that. Yeah. I, I absolutely love the way you frame that because it's, uh, one of my major points about doing this whole thing is 
pretty much articulating to people that we need the arts no matter where you are, no matter where you come from, because it is, it is a foundational thing for the well-being of a community. Right. And the more we build that case, you know, even by, by just doing something like this, I think that's, that's the best direction to go. Um, but I was going to ask oh, yeah. you in, in terms of, I guess, I guess you being a, a solo performer, this is, <laughs> it's pretty much like, I can't even imagine being out there on your own on stage and, and doing your own work. Can you describe to me the high of doing that? Because I, I performed <laughs> in my own place, but I've never like completely removed the net under me and just, right. just completely gone in and validated myself in such a way to act and write that. Right. What, well, what's that like? I, well, it's, you know, I have to say, I, I've never written my multi-character plays that are not solo works for, as a role for myself. I've always written those to, for other actors to do. The solo plays basically came out of necessity for me to create work for myself as a performer. And the fact that I happened to be able to write just mm -hmm. was kind of an extra benefit. So it wasn't yeah. as much like a, an actor who was not experienced with writing, writing a solo play. It was someone who, you know, was a seasoned playwright who was just, you know, writing for himself. So the first time, I mean, I've written now three uh, solo plays. The first one I wrote was a play called, uh, solo play was called the hyenas got it down mm -hmm. and it was structured similarly <laughs> to american tranquility it was it was it was basically four monologues they weren't really um thematically connected other than they were kind of all kind of darkly comic mm. um one was a weight loss guru um one was a was like a southern football coach a jv football coach <laughs> uh, was um kind of a charles bukowski as poet uh who reads a long poem about uh basically devouring his Chinese delivery man. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of dark stuff, but it was, oh, I, I, love that. I, I did it at the midtown and, and that was my first time really putting myself out there by myself. I mean, it was an hour show and, you know, I liked it. I, I, I really do love working with other actors though. I have to say, mm -hmm. because, because you're getting energy from the other actor as well. And that helps fuel you when you're doing a solo piece your energy is you're creating it. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. And you, and cause if you have, if you have an audience that, you know, you have these, some audiences that aren't as vocal as others. So what do you do? You gotta, you gotta jack it up. You gotta build your own energy up. Mm -hmm. So I've taught solo performance and that's what I've kind of brought home is, you know, when you're performing this live, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great when you're getting the laughs or where you're feeling their presence, but sometimes it's crickets. <laughs> Sometimes it's a reserved audience and um, you, you have to keep that energy up. And that's, to me, is the biggest challenge of being a solo performer, being your own energy, working mm. off yourself because yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. no one else you there. Self-perpetuating. Um, yeah. 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 Oh my goodness. And you got to keep it interesting. So Right. Yeah. Um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. I had a really good question, but I totally lost it. It left me. Um, I'm sure you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just think It'll it's, come back. it's, it's fun because I, I feel that I work the, the exact opposite in terms of, of me being a writer and everything else is an extension of that. Right. It's almost like I, I get a sense of this story is now on paper, but I need to add something else to it. I need to have performance and I need to be that vehicle or I need to record it or I need to do this. And so I, I just think that it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing that you're doing in terms of, of layering different 
artistic endeavors, you know, and, and using, using your, um, your acting abilities, using, using the pen and all these things. But I don't know. I just, I just think that, uh, it's, it's very, um, inspiring to see that, uh, to see that happen. And, uh, oh, I kind well, I, I kind of remember that, that picture of you as a coach, I think they, they used it for last frontier or maybe there was something. Oh, like I, that I did. Know. I did. Yeah, uh, I did a piece <laughs> from it at, at one of those, the that's little open what I mics that they had. Yeah. And I remember was, you doing I, that. I totally just, I think I grabbed the hat <laughs> off of, I forget his name now. We're Facebook friends. You're probably Facebook friends with him. And I grabbed this, he gave me his hat and I put it on and that was the, and I did the coach. <laughs> and, and that was really fun because everyone, it was like the perfect audience for that particular piece. Oh yeah. And then right. I think I also did, I did do the poet at a, at, I think in 09, mm. I think at a similar setting and I did the poet, yeah. um, which was also fun to do. Nice. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you, you can't wait. I mean, while, while you, and this piece I just wrote, um, it's called one from the current, and this is actually the one with the current, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, it's, it's the first solo piece I've written. That is a single character with one narrative. Ooh, um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not like a multi-character thing. It's literally just one character kind of back and forth in time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about this. I can't go into detail because there's like some major spoilers, sure, but sure. Um, it's about a North Carolina fish uh, guy who's a, he's a hardware store owner. He's a husband and father mm. of two kids. And he goes on a fishing trip up North with an old childhood friend. And the piece is basically, you know, the ba focuses around the events that followed that fishing trip mm. and affected his life. And so that's as much as I can say. I will say it's <laughs> yeah, quite yeah. timely, but um, yeah. And, and that's something that came out. I mean, I didn't write a play all year, the whole time of the pandemic until mm -hmm. uh, the spring, I started working on this piece because also, again, I wanted to, you know, give myself something to do, yeah. but it was also this idea that I had had that I wanted to kind of put to paper. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting that out there and hearing what people think. Oh, that's excellent. Do you have, could you, or maybe could you tell me a little bit about, um, writing rituals or if you believe in that sort of thing, do you think that there's such a thing as like repeating the same thing over and over again, or do you have a specific process that helps you because you crank them out, my friend, I, I checked out your website and you have quite a few and I'm, I'm curious how, how you keep rolling. You know, it seems like, uh, like you don't stall. Um, I don't really have any specific writing rit ritual. I don't. I don't write every day. Um, you know, it's basically if I have an idea for something, um, you know, I mean, as far as plays, which are the things I've, I've written most of, um, you know, I, I, once I have an idea and a starting point, um, I see, I basically see how long I can go. Uh, if I feel like I'm running into an impasse, I'll, I'll step back and maybe won't touch it for, you know, for a, a few days, you know, just try and divert myself with other things and, and get re-inspired. Um, you know, it does, it does change for each different work as far as like how I work. But I guess the one thing that's consistent is, is I don't have any real consistency. <laughs> I mean, I don't, um, I, 
I, I really don't beat myself up. I mean, and one thing I really tell people, because I have friends who've taken writing classes and, you know, they hear about this, you know, write a page a day and they, if yeah. they're not feeling it, they feel like they're forcing it. And I'm just like, well, just don't force it. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah. I don't know if it got modeled before, but yeah, I mean, the long and the short is I just didn't, I didn't feel you should ever force the process. You should basically go with inspiration. And if you need inspiration, you know, take a break and, you know, divert your attention to something else and come back. Um, and that's usually more or less what's, what's worked for me. Awesome. Um, you know, and then you have these patches where you, you finally, you know, if you get in a zone with something and, and that could take you a long ways and you just basically ride it out, you know, you try and seize that moment. Absolutely. So can I ask you where the woman in the sun hat came from for you? Um, it is such a, it's such an interesting journey because it, in at times it feels like a very, very intimate experience, you know, in novel form, but then you're also tackling a lot of these bigger ideas. In particular, I was really struck by, by the class divide and, and this sort of thing. Um, there's mm -hmm. a lot that you cover in, in the novel, but just primarily where did that initial impulse come from to write this? Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I had um, conceived the basic, basic idea of this um, as like a, a, a cable show outline initially mm, okay. before I had, e I had even fathomed writing a novel. Um, I th and I think the initial impetus was there was like a film producer who had come to see one of my plays and he basically wanted to know if I had any ideas for things. And so that was my incentive to kind of come up with some stuff. Mm. And I had had that idea initially just as an outline. And then I came back to it um, sometime later and looked at it and said, you know, I think this would actually work better as a novel. I think mm. I really could see this as a novel. And this kind of outline is it can start me off because I already kind of had just a general Air, you know, I had the basic premise of it. I didn't. I didn't even have a lot of what happens in the second half of the book in it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the basic impetus of this woman, um, for Peggy Buboni, um, <laughs> who's in this, lives in this affluent fictional Long Island town called Cold River with a very successful dermatologist husband and two kids, and. Um, basically how it all you know and she's just getting back into teaching uh literature when she had basically been just a housewife and mother for the better part of the last decade and a half mm -hmm. and she's just getting back to kind of having a sense of what she originally of her original aspirations when she came out of college and then it's like a door slam and and everything just turns with the arrest of her husband for insurance fraud and that was pretty much what I had and then the journey mm. that she would go on. And then once I got into committing that this would be a novel was just, you know, it was more about the journey. It was more about, you know, mm. where, where she's going, what she learns about herself, what she was, what she became and her roots. And, um, mm -hmm. that became, you know, very, you know, interesting for me. And, and, um, so I just kind of, went with that 
And, um, you know, my goal was to make this, I mean, to me, ultimately, if someone asked me what I feel this is, I, I think it's a character study because um, mm -hmm. that's what I consider my plays to be. I mean, while they are about something and they have plots and themes, at the end of the day, I, I always conceive them originally as character studies. And this, I wanted the book to have the same integrity that I put into my plays. I really wanted this to be a real character excavation mm -hmm. of this woman. Uh, that's what I, what I sought out to do and really just explore, you know, yeah. to me, it, it, the real interesting thing was, you know, our paths can divert very easily. And of course, it, for reasons of marriage and motherhood or fatherhood or whatever, they can change and you could lose sight of what you originally, you know, had set for yourself. And sometimes people are content with changing and, and being that other thing. And then sometimes it really is like a part of you that's just gone or dormant. And um, right. Peggy, you know, it's, it's really a, a novel about self-discovery. And that's a, a theme that's always been really, really interesting for me. And I thought it just worked really well in, in this form. It was, it was fun to, to explore. Yeah. And I, I really am taken with that sense of peeling the onion back and, and the way that you handled that throughout mm -hmm. the book, because you, you do get tidbits and you do get just a, a bit of momentum toward these kinds of realizations. But even as, as I was, you know, in the second half of the book, I still wasn't sure how things were going to pan out. There was, there was just a lot of mystery that was lingering mm -hmm. in terms of in particular, that relationship with her mother was was very poignant to me and very well drawn. Just mm. in, in terms of how you you some you inherit certain things from your parents. I think it's a it's a big theme in my work and the in the things that I like too. And so mm. that that just naturally just I gravitated to that. And yeah. I I thoroughly enjoyed the way that you wrote these characters. <laughs> you know, they, you. they really Thank came you. alive and, and they were very uh very exciting to me, but against this backdrop of, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that clear class divide and the entertainment and the way that, that I guess entertainment is packaged for certain people who just don't have the resources to know anything outside of their own, um, silo is, right. I was very intrigued by that. Like, is, is that something that, that you see regularly or, or what, what brought about that portion of the work? Did it come from the characters? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the thrust of of Peggy's drive is is basically keeping where she came from as much at bay as possible. That's yeah. been where she's at at the beginning of the book. It's like so suppressed underground, um, you know, that the fact that it ends up surfacing so much that you know. It, it hits her in the face and it's something that she can't not address. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, where we come from is, is always, it, it's just important to who we are as individuals, even if we, they may be horrible beginnings. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's, you can't ignore it, I, I guess, at the end of the day. <laughs> and I, yeah. and I, I think, you know, I, I think in terms of the class thing, you know, I mean, I think different classes have different priorities in their lives. And I think what satisfies one, um, you know, you know, like there's there's a, a you know, lower middle class um, people um, 
such as, you know, Peggy's mom in the book, you know, may be completely satisfied to just watch, you know, Dateline <laughs> yeah. and sordid crime shows yeah. uh, that she's seen a million times over. And that satiates her enough. Whereas where Peggy was living for 15 years, you know, it was all about keeping up appearances and facade and, um, you know, social appearances and, and parties and, um, you know, and, and I think conformity is also a big part of the book too mm, you know right. you yeah you can you conform yourself to thinking you're being something that you want to be when it's not really you and <laughs> the fact that you can only find out that when a tragedy happens and then you have no choice but to realize this has all been a ruse this has all been a facade and mm. what am i really what mm. the hell am i and what is my what is my purpose here and I think that's that's the roots of the of the story, the drive of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was a it was a very rewarding moment to get to that, um, you know. And obviously, no no spoilers, of course. But uh, just <laughs> thank you. <laughs> just you know, like the the way that it that that things unfold and and resolve it, it definitely was not something that I expected, and it was. Uh, uh, very enjoyable, but I did sit with it for a while. You know, it's, it sounds like, you know, around bedtime, you know, my wife and I are reading our respective books and I just sat there, I closed the book and I, I sat there for a little bit like, huh, <laughs> you know, like, it was, I think a wonderful response because my mind was just kind of going in a, in a million different directions about, you know, right. the, the kind of resolution that you only get in, in good writing. So I, I just really want to commend you for that because it, it did take me on a journey, you know, and, and Thanks, man. You, you had me Googling places like cold river. And I was like, gosh, shit, I better get this right. Or, you know, he's, <laughs> he's going to think that I have no idea where New York is. I thought it was in the South pole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, um, it's, it's kind of freeing, isn't it? Setting the story in cold river rather than one of the actual places there. Do you think? Well, you don't, you don't want to have anyone say, well, you know, well, that's the, that, doesn't exist here or whatever yeah if it's a real place all of a sudden the onus is on you to be accurate you know whereas if you make up a town you have creative license to just make it your own place well there could be a road there there could be a rest a french restaurant on the corner there could be that street there can be yeah. a cornelius street and there can be that i mean i always love that i always make up towns and plays and yeah um it just makes it it just makes it easier i mean even when i'm i've written pieces based on like a historical like you know mainly most of my plays with the exception of like my last full-length play mm -hmm. uh called john frederick parker leaves at intermission which was about the guy <laughs> responsible for guarding president lincoln the night he was shot oh my God. um uh, yeah <laughs> yeah wow. but but aside from that i've done I, my plays that have been inspired by real people i've changed the names and changed all the details uh, the you know the general details of it because i didn't want to be put in a hole where i had to be accurate to that person's story sure um i wanted to make it my own to me that's mm -hmm. much easier to be have creative flexibility as opposed to having being more of a journalist mm -hmm. and really you know analyzing the geographies of a specific town if you're mm -hmm. depicting a, a real town right and all that so. yeah do you look to history for uh, inspiration or do you just leisurely read, uh, read up on history? I noticed there were a couple of plays that had um, maybe, maybe based on real events or maybe, you know, historical. In, in more recent years, it seems like 
stuff has come out. I, I've written plays based on things I've read about, like just incidents that I've read about or or a particular, just something that I just read that happened um, and just created an, an original story around that. Um, and I just found that to be a, another really interesting way to to launch into a, an idea or a launch into a story. Um, my earlier plays were more literally starting from the ground up in terms of just, you know, creating a basic premise and not having it be inspired by anything. Mm. But in more recent years, I've just allowed myself if something's hit me and said, oh, that could be mm. that could be interesting. Just as an a, as one example, I had a play of mine called uh, Harmony Park, uh, which Detroit rep premiered uh back in 2018 they did a really wonderful production of it and um that play is basically about four landscapers in uh, a park in queens and a it's a harmony park is is like a fictitious park in queens i've actually since found out that harmony park is actually a real park oh, wow. in brooklyn in <laughs> brooklyn but uh, you know it's neither here nor there but i i like the title and um so basically that came out of something i had read about um there was i think it was maybe 2017 or 16 i read a story in the paper in new york about a disgraced cop who was um he had been involved in a very notorious uh abuse of a of a of, i don't know if you've heard of amadou diallo um that was like a name that was like really resident here mm, in the I 90s yeah, there was basically five cops and they um, they just battered him and he nearly died. Oh, no. And all these cops were were imprisoned. And this one cop, he wasn't like the most instrumental, but he was, you know, he was there. He didn't do anything to stop it. And he was sentenced to, I think, five years. Hmm. And so he got out, he served his time, and then he tried to get a job at the local uh, Con Edison here, which is our local uh, electric plant here in New York. And he was hired and the person that hired him knew of his background and was like, all right, the guy served his time and hired him. And then word came out from people that were working with him who he was. And they went to HR and had the guy fired. And so I took I saw that and I thought, now, my play is nothing about that. Um, but I had the that initial premise of, well, what if there were these guys that were working on this park? And then they get a new guy and he has this thing in his past. Mm. Uh, he was a disgraced cop and they don't know this right off the bat and they befriend him and they come friendly and then they find out. And actually the, the play is more of a, about the relationship between a, this a black foreman and a, his younger Italian American sort of protege uh, who's a landscaper. And then there's this, they have a kind of a, almost like a father son bond. And then this other guy comes and befriends them both, but then they find out about his past mm. and the rift that creates. And that all started just from an article I had read and then just made it into something else. Oh, and that's and, a, um, a fascinating premise. I'd be, I'd be curious or eager to read that. That, that does sound like a really oh, good sure. Um, in terms of, um, looking at, theater as something that can create actionable change or, you know, do you see theater as activism? Do you think that, th that theater is an effective communicator for the world we live in now as a, as a tool for activism or enacting change? Well, I, I will stress this. 
the plays have to be good. <laughs> um, you can't you can't just have activism for active activism's sake. Yeah. yeah. Um, because nothing is nothing is more boring. Nothing is more boring than just to me, at least as an audience, <laughs> to have to have righteous themes ill served by by you know a, a, a an ill formed play, mm-hmm. um, which I've seen quite a bit. And I'm not talking off off Broadway. I'm talking like some of the major off-Broadway theaters in New York here. Mm. Um, I think what is impactful is when you have a quality play with real people that just happen to be living in this world where there are these topical issues lie. And that is, to me, how you really can make um, a a real impression on an audience because an audience has to first get these characters. They really have to care about the characters. They they know all these themes. You know, audiences are very smart. You know, they they read the papers. They know what's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, now they want to be brought into a world of 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 these characters who they don't know, and um, through their empathy, identification, what have you, with these characters they're seeing on stage, then they can get impacted by the issue and see it in a way that they have maybe haven't seen it and that to me is really where theater can be forceful the work has Mm -hmm. to be good uh you can't just have plays being done because they're topical um because they they don't necessarily have the legs to stand on dramatically so if you have the quality of the work is there then you can you can make an impression Mm -hmm. uh you can you know i always say if you have an audience of 200 people you know you can if you can make two or three people walk out of a theater and and really change something about their way of thinking you know that's a victory that's there's something to be said for that i mean and and we don't necessarily ever know it because we don't know these people or whatever necessarily but Mm -hmm. um i think that's theater is definitely a great source for it but again it it has to be the work first uh, and the so, quality of the work. So there is possibility of of practical impact. You just have to start from the human aspect of it, the center of 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 what being a human being is about, rather than than yeah, you know, preaching a, a message. Okay. Well, otherwise, you yeah. can just see a documentary on any of these things. I mean, there's great <laughs> documentaries. I mean, there's great documentaries that made on so many different things. And if you want the subject. Uh, of something, you know, and, and that's a great source, but, you know, theater is about storytelling. And so that can't be lost. I mean, styles mm-hmm. of theater vary. You have abstract, avant-garde, all that stuff. And it's, I love all that, yeah. but at the end of the day, you know, it's mainly about storytelling. And so if you don't have a story, if you just have it, your, your, uh, you know, what your, your advocacy is, mm-hmm. what your, um, your, you know, what the things are that you are, you know, angry about, you know, you can't just have the, the themes, you can't just have the right. issues, you got to have the characters. And that's what makes, that's what it'll make everything work. That's what mm-hmm. it, will make it interesting. So can you, can you tell me a little bit about um, your relationship with the, with Brooklyn or the place where you live in or where you were raised? I, when you, when you mention, you know, or when I see, let, let's say this, when I see New York on TV, or, or living in a large city, I get, I feel a sense of overwhelm. What is your experience as an artist day to day in, in the place where you live? Is it conducive to, to processing and thinking, originating content, or do you have to have some kind of fail safe that, that you need to kind of clear your mind 
from, or, or do you ever get overwhelmed from city life? You know, I get overwhelmed like at airports and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I really d- dislike airports incredibly. That That's to me <laughs> a, a real ass- assault of the senses. It's just yeah. too much with the checking in and it's just a lot of rush, rush. I mean, New York is just, you know, I'm from New Jersey. I'm born and raised in New Jersey. And when I was 11 years old, my mother was working in the city and she would commute. And she brought me to the city the first time. And, you know, it was like the bug bit me. I just loved the city. Mm. I, I loved the vibe of the city. Now, the city's changed a lot. I mean, the city is has lost some of its guts. It's lost some of its, you know, the mom and pop businesses are have, I mean, they still exist, but they've dwindled. Mm. Um, but, you know, the city is not just the island of Manhattan. I mean, it's Brooklyn, it's Queens. There's so much there that's still there um plus we have parks i mean where i live in brooklyn in an area called sunset park which is maybe a 20 minute train ride out of the city and i'm literally we're literally two blocks from an actual the actual sunset park which is on a hill it views the city and it's very nice i go there to read i go there to write Mm. um you know i think unless you live in like a you know, there's apartments vary in New York. There's the walk-ups that are, you know, you walk up five flights of stairs, like my wife used to live in <laughs> and apartments are very close to each other and you can hear things through the wall. Yeah. You know, I, the, <laughs> the majority of my time living in New York has been in like Queens and, and Brooklyn and I've had more space. Um, it's also a little more affordable um, mm-hmm. to be outside of the city. I mean, it's just ridiculous um, <laughs> real estate in New York. I mean, yeah, yeah. it really is. But you do have, it's a little more, I wouldn't say, well, I mean, rural, but it's not rural, but it's nice because you still have everything you need within arm's length. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get, you can quickly go out and, and um, you know, you can be inspired and you could see things and you can be surprised. I mean, sometimes it's annoying, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes, it, you know, I, I've, I ride the subway and, you know, if I'm, you know, we have a mask mandate. And if I I get annoyed when I see people not wearing a mask, I mean, (laughs) during the middle of the pandemic, I was seeing this, you know, and, and um, you pick, you have to pick your spots of who to address and because you don't know who's nuts. And, um, but, you know, there's so many people here, I think by and large, people have good intentions and are caring individuals, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we have so many people here Right. That when you have even a small percentage of, of of a different element, a more dangerous element, it's still a lot compared to other places in the country. But right. it's just fit me. It's just fit me like a glove. I mean, I, I love going to other places, but I always feel, you know, I always feel comfortable back in the city. I always feel comfortable knowing mm. I can just walk out of my apartment and if I want Chinese, I just walk a block down here. Or if oh, my wife man. and I want to want to go to the Mexican place around the corner, <laughs> it's right there. So that I is, like that. That is the one thing I am so envious of. Uh, you you can't even imagine. Uh, my wife and I love um, love all kinds of food. We we try to yeah. get new food opportunities, and we love that about Seattle. You you could just get anything. And oh everything. yeah. We come back to Wyoming after our son was born and, you know, we, we've had to make do with our, our favorite Thai restaurant and, and maybe, uh, you know, one Mexican place that's pretty like legit and, uh, and that's it, you know, <laughs> how far are these, how far are they from you driving wise? Uh, well they're, they're in town, you know, um, and this is going to be laughable. Okay. Just to give you a, a sense of, of context okay. too, when you said, uh, the area where, where you were at was about 8 million people or so. 
we are one sixteenth of that in the entire state combined. Yeah, not, so, yeah. you know, uh, I live in Casper, which is about 60,000 people, 65,000 people. And we, we have like a handful of restaurants, but it's pretty traditional, like American food, like burgers and stuff like that. And every now sure. and then we get a gem. And when we get that gem, we try to support it be, be a good patron and eat there all the time because we don't want it to go away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We're just like, we can't, we, you know, okay. Even though we don't feel like Thai, Thai food this week, we got to have it because we don't want it to go away. We want it to be there tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, in terms of, of, you know, the experiences in your day to day, what is, what is inspiring you right now? Are there any works of art that you, that you really enjoy? Um, I, I did, uh, I did love the Van Gogh moments of the woman in the sun hat. And we recently went to a Van Gogh exhibit in Denver which was pretty awesome. It was one of those immersive ones that was. Oh really yeah. My cool. wife and I just went to it like oh, two weeks ago. Oh yeah. nice, Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those are amazing. I, I wish they could do more of those. Um, I wish Van Gogh were alive to see just oh, how adored he is. I mean, yeah. it's these immersive exhibits are like everywhere. I think they're down They're in Florida. They're in they're they're coming up everywhere and actually we have two exhibits that are from two different companies Mm. um the guy at the one exhibit this the one that we went to is the immersive exhibit at pier 36 uh which Mm. is right by the water and then the one of the guys who worked there said well there's another exhibit that's a competing company Uh and that's like on the other side of town and i was like wow this is yeah there's like such a rock star yeah absolutely did you ever see that episode of doctor who where they brought him back to life I'm going to find that clip no, and, and I, send I, it to you. I don't you. follow Dr. Who. No. I don't either, but you, I do go down a YouTube rabbit hole so often that um, I must have been looking at Van Gogh <laughs> stuff or whatever. And they have this clip where, where he gets to live and see his, you know, his work. And it's a very moving moment. And I'm like, I'm not like oh, a huge nice. Dr. Who fan, but I think you'd get a kick out of it, you know, after what you mentioned there. No, it was, I, it was funny too, because I actually, I, I, I don't know if you'd seen the movie, uh, at Eternity's Gate. Not yet. Um, Is Willem that Willem Defoe. Defoe? That's a, yeah. Oh, and okay. a friend of mine saw it. I had forgotten about it. And he was like, yeah, you really should see it. Mm. And I saw the trailer and it's uncanny. I mean, I was like, yeah, what great casting. Defoe looks just like him. Oh man. And he's a, he's um, and a killer. It looks very he... moving. I mean, it's, I think it's like the last couple of years of his life when he was like mm. going, really going through real, real struggles, but he was still popping out. He was still churning them out. Yeah. Um, but he was also going through just so many emotional struggles. Yeah. And that's absolutely the devastating thing of, of his situation in that even though he was going through so much pain, he was able to give us beauty, you know, and, and they mentioned that in, you know, in the Doctor Who segment where, where, um, an art critic is, is mentioning that, you know, no matter all the pain that he endured, he was still able to see the beauty of the world. And, and that's the difficult thing. And that kind of stuck with me because why wouldn't yeah. you want to turn that sadness or that grief into, into love and light and beauty? Well, because it's really hard, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you think, you think, I mean, we, we, the outsider, you know, sees, well, these, these, he's clearly was a genius. He should have been very happy in his life and they don't get, you know, so many of these are, I mean, Mozart and Monet, I mean, these, they, they struggled horribly in their lives. They died. Yeah. basically paupers, you know, and it's uh-huh. just the ultimate irony of life that, you know, you would create so much wonderful work and you wouldn't live to 
see, well, see the value, see what it's valued at for one. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that that's off the charts. I mean, to think that you pay multi, multi-million dollars for one painting, mm-hmm. um, but also see, you know, what people see in it. I mean, you know, Van Gogh, for all his popularity, you know, this these immersive exhibits is really, he's perfect for it because he's, his gift with color and the boldness of those colors, mm-hmm. it really is like animation because it's so bold yeah. and so heartfelt, you know, it really comes through and it lends itself to motion and all the things that they right. did in the immersive exhibit. So yeah. yeah, I recommend people check it out. Very successful. Um, and, uh, I have to ask you this question because my last guest, I didn't ask this question and, and, uh, I really wanted to, but it's, okay. it's super dumb. Uh, what do you listen to? What are you listening oh, to right music? now? Yeah. Yeah. Music. Yeah. Oh God. I've actually been, I go through a phase. I actually have, we have a boom box that we, my brother-in-law gave us for our wedding um, because we, that's our stereo system. It's been our stereo system for 20 some years now. Nice. And um, so I still literally play CDs on it. My, my iPod, uh, the battery went dead. So I'm not even listening to my iPods, but I, go into my old CDs and I've been playing of late. I've been playing uh, Elton John's uh, masterpiece album, Tumbleweed Collect Connection. I don't know if oh, you've ever you heard of Absolutely. Album. Yeah. I was raised on Elton oh, John. My God. My, I, uh, yeah. My mom's a diehard. We've seen him uh, three times. Elton John. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's, What's he's great about that album is that it's, it's probably the only album that doesn't have any singles on it. I mean, it's just mm. a total concept album. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has songs that became known, but it's just such a masterpiece. And I hadn't listened to it in full in a while. And I've just been kind of playing it pretty much once a day the last week or so. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm partial to, uh, to obviously goodbye yellow brick road because those, those big singles were the only oh, thing yeah. that, that made it to Mexico, you know, when my parents were listening to that music and they, they played that 24 seven for me. So I, I was definitely a, um, a seventies music child, like, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, oh, yeah. yeah, the, the Eagles, me Queen. Too. what's that? The who? Hello. Oh yeah. Well, the who, I mean, I, I was, I was, when I was a kid before I even knew the Beatles, I mean, the Beatles are my favorite band, but before mm-hmm. I even knew the Beatles, <laughs> I was Paul McCartney, uh, Paul McCartney and wings, man. I oh, loved yeah. Oh yeah. to this day. I still listen to his solo stuff and band on the run and all the, you know, his first solo album, which he did like on a four track, yeah. um, like a demo. Um, right. yeah. I mean, I love a lot of this. I was a progressive rock guy. Uh, nice. yes. And, and uh emerson lake and palmer and those guys and mm. yeah i love a lot of that stuff a yeah. lot of that stuff. what do you think of paul mccartney's later stuff this is just a personal inquiry just curious i i admittedly i haven't been as loyal in getting like the very recent stuff i think the last album i owned uh was memory almost full which was something right. that i think he had something with starbucks involved yeah, I think it was you can released get it at starbucks exclusively on the starbucks and, label because they have labels now <laughs> yeah um, that kind of made me a little nauseous because one yeah. i just despise starbucks but um uh but i also just thought it was just so strange but mm-hmm. um that was the last full album i've gotten and usually i try and listen to like the songs as they come out but i haven't gotten recent albums i mean yeah. you know i think he's like 
just one of the greatest songwriters ever. Oh, yeah. um, I yeah. not everything is a is a gem, but he's just got his output is so significant. I mean, post Beatles as well as right um, with the Beatles, obviously. So um, I think he's I I think he's still got it. I mean, I think he's he's just still got a real creative drive, and I think it's going to be with him to the end. Absolutely. And, and God bless him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, my Absolutely. favorite one of late was the one that he did with Radiohead's producers or producer in like Oh five. It was a, I absolutely love chaos that and creation in the backyard. Yeah. I, I adore that album. It's chaos and creation. In I, the I thought that was probably the last, his last really, really good one. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, but anyway, chaos sorry. And creation in the backyard. <laughs> McCartney digression aside. Um, <laughs> album. Awesome. Well, I tell, I tell you what, man, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, uh, I did want to, um, just plug all of the, the awesome work that, uh, that you have going on and that you created this summer. I think, uh, obviously you Thank must you. be quite proud of yourself for the output. And of course the great work that you're doing. I'm, I'm very, um, honored that you, uh, that you've, reached out and then i i've been able to to work with you and doing some poetry readings for you it's it's really been a pleasure man and i can't thank you enough for um for oh su- jamie thanks so much it really, yeah okay uh no i just wanted to thank you for the forum and thank you for your support jamie i i really really appreciate it and um and i want to say here that i also i really enjoyed your poetry book and um oh, hope thanks, that's man. doing well for you yeah that was i really like the collect that assemblage Poetry nice is something I still have a lot to learn from, and uh, I, I am certainly a student, so I definitely appreciate your uh, your work. You're uh, guiding me in the right direction. So thanks, man, for everything, and uh, I hope to talk to you real soon. So anytime you have something to plug, if you if you want to promote anything or just catch up, please feel free to let me know, because you know where to find me now. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Absolutely, man, and just a great excuse to talk to you. Thanks so much, man. Absolutely. Let's keep talking about classic music. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll swap CDs in the mail. <laughs>